They are the first fruits. When we see that the scriptures very exclusively limit the first resurrection to this number, it raises quite a few questions about understanding other passages that we might previously have thought impacted it. So last time we addressed John 10:16, where Christ stated that he had other sheep, not of this fold, and we went through the context to show that the original fold was physical Israel, but that Christ was, as he spoke, building another fold on the foundation of himself, the apostles, and the prophets. We examined several passages to show that Christ absolutely took all spiritual power and influence away from the Jews, i.e. Judah, Levi, Benjamin, and the rest of physical Israel. The emphasis was not to be Moses and Elijah, but Christ in the New Testament church. I went over some of those fairly quickly because I was running out of time, so you might go back and review them. I will apologize because I saw I only had so much time left and this much material to cover, and I took off like a rocket. And uh, I know that's frustrating and confusing sometimes, so I'll apologize. And today, if I see I don't have time to finish what I had in mind, I will try to just plod on at that speed and uh, stop in mid-sentence and continue it from there. At any rate, I use several passages from the Old Testament showing the importance of the church and quoted Ezekiel 5 and the famine, pestilence, and sword on Israel to apply to the scattering of the church. Now since that time, a question was raised. How can these prophecies about Israel be applied to the New Testament church? How can we know they are not just prophecies about physical Israel, but applied to the church scattering and all that pertains to the church today? That they are dual in meaning for both the church and Israel in their own time. Now in past sermons and the prophecies, I have referred to the church as our mother and the splits as her daughters to Zion as the church and the daughters of Zion as the splits, Jerusalem to refer to the church and sometimes its government, and so on, using these analogies to apply them to the church. Some have difficulty understanding this, others are seeing it, and a few, frankly, think I'm nuts. Now, we just had a sermon here in the sermonette, a tape from Mr. Armstrong in which he began by showing that the New Testament church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he took time to name who he was talking about. He said Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Malachi, naming the prophets, that the New Testament church was built on them. Now to me that ties in pretty closely the prophecies with the New Testament church because the scripture says that. That's what he was quoting. So if I'm nuts, at least I'm in good company. Now, as the subject at hand, that is, the church and its exclusivity, the 144,000, the innumerable multitude, guests at the wedding, and for that matter, the understanding of all prophecy draws on some of these symbols for understanding, we should insert a section on understanding of biblical symbolism before continuing with the specific questions at hand. What is the internal evidence from the Bible? How does the Bible interpret the Bible? Not how does Daryl Henson or someone else interpret it. But what does the book itself say internally? 
So let's ask one question first. To whom is the Bible written? 1 Corinthians 10 is the first scripture that I want to include in understanding this. Here Paul is referring to the people overthrown in the wilderness and the terrible things they got into, how 23,000 were killed on one day. And he says in verse 11, Now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The reason these things are written down is not primarily for physical Israel, who is us here. Paul is referring to himself and to the New Testament church, the church at Corinth in this case. Written for us, the New Testament church, from the Old Testament. Now let's go to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Verse 4, Romans 15, 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, whatever was written in the past, before the time he's talking to the Roman church, were written for our learning, he and the Roman church here, the New Testament, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope, hope of the resurrection, hope of being a part of the mystery of God. So they are written for our spiritual understanding, to fulfill our spiritual hope. That's why they were written, very clearly here, stated by Paul. Now let's take one more under this question and go back to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. This know also, here he's addressing Timothy, a minister in the New Testament church, who was a supervisor of people, a flock, within God's church. This know also, Timothy, that in the last days perilous times shall come. In the last days. Well, there's your context to a New Testament minister. All right, let's go down to verse uh, 14. But continue you in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. Which Holy Scriptures? The New Testament was not yet canonized. It was not Scripture. Timothy had read the Old Testament Scriptures from a child. Now this is an interesting statement about the Old Testament, isn't it? Which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has preached a great deal in the prophecies of the Old Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that's talking about the Old Testament still. And is profitable for doctrine. The New Testament church gets doctrine out of the Old Testament. For reproof. For correction. For instruction in righteousness and holiness and New Testament covenant understanding, all of it, including the prophets, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished unto all good works. So understanding the spiritual meaning of the Old Testament can bring you to perfection or maturity, he says. 
So he definitely ties it to the church and to the New Testament. Now, I want to go back to Ezekiel 34. You can come back with me if you wish. And uh, read a little bit here. Ezekiel 34. He says in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, and I'll just skip through, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you've ruled them. My flock was scattered, verse 6, and none did search or seek after them. I will deliver my flock from your mouth, in verse 10. Verse 18, seems it a small thing to you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastors, pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. Now hold that thought in mind, and I want to go to Malachi 1. Malachi 1. Here he's talking again to the priests. Verse 7, you offer polluted bread upon my altar. You say, wherein have we polluted you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Verse 10, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Verse 12, you have profaned it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Pretty scathing attack, isn't it, in those two chapters? Now, what color are those two chapters in your Bible? I would bet most of you have red and blue and yellow and green and black scattered all through there. I'll bet you have said, boy, that's for sure, and you've marked that and showed it, and by the time you came out of Worldwide Church of God, most of you, I'm sure, had read these scriptures. Now, is there anyone in this room or within the hearing of my voice who believes that these are not referring to the ministry of the Church of God today? Could I see the hands of those who believe that? I don't see any here. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? This isn't talking about just the ministers of physical Israel, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Evangelicals, the Catholics. Now, If you believe these scriptures have meaning for God's true church today, what principle have you just applied to the scriptures? You. What did you apply to it ten years ago, five years ago, twelve years ago, when you left God's church, I mean left Worldwide Church of God? You applied the principle of duality. You said this isn't just talking about these Methodists out here in physical Israel. This is referring to the Church of God. It fits so well. It's those skunks. And you packed up your Bible and your kids and their toys and you marched out. Because you believe that applied to the Church of God. 
And you were right. Now, does, does that mean that it does not apply to the Methodists and the Baptists? No, in a physical sense, and ultimately, yes, it does, and God will punish them for what they've done. But it also applies to the church, and primarily and first to the church. I think we can see that. This is a really easy example. Now I have another question. Why is it that we can see a simple example like this so easily and yet balk at seeing it in the rest of the prophecies? Where it maybe isn't quite so easy to apply, or we have to think, or we have to study it through, but we balk at the principle, some of us, even though we've used it. Now let's do a quick summary of the Bible. In Genesis 1.26, God gives a specific purpose statement. Let us make man in our image. This was his goal, this was his purpose, this was the mystery that he had in mind from the very beginning. He picked faithful Abraham out of the peoples back then to begin a nation, Israel, and through Mer Moses he drew them out of sin and married them, and they went whoring after other gods and nations, and he divorced them. Now that's a pretty quick and thumbnail capsule of the history of ancient Israel. And it ends there except for Old Testament prophecies about what would happen thereafter. Now let's go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. And see that this scenario is what I just said it is. Ephesians 1. Here Paul addresses the saints at Ephesus. And he says in verse 4, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So before he even started this process, he knew what his specific purpose was, and he knew what Adam and Eve would do based on human nature and Satan, and he knew how he would begin a series of situations that would lead to the redemption of his people eventually. And speaking to the church here, Paul says, he knew us from the very beginning, having predestinated us, verse 5, under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. There's some symbolism there. We are symbolized as children of God. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is an interesting word. We read it in, Zechar I mean in uh, Revelation where it says these are the redeemed of the earth, the first fruits. These are the ones that he has worked through history to redeem. And he talks, verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated. Verse 13, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, end of the verse. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. What's the sealing of revelation? Those that God has sealed to him through his Holy Spirit which is the earnest of our, of our inheritance, the beginning, the begettle of our inheritance, which we are to receive. Now he goes on in chapter 2, and he's talking about the Gentiles, verse 11. Remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, and that as, as such... You are aliens, verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. And then he shows in verse 16 that he reconciled both to God in one body. In other words, the circumcision is nothing. The physical Israelites mean nothing spiritually. 
circumcision is of the heart. And just because you were a physical Israelite and were circumcised, God says it cuts no ice with me. He's made them, verse 19, no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Some have said that the 144,000 is just physical Israelites. Not so. God has grafted in Gentiles, Romans 11. I have a lot of scriptures on that, and I don't want to get into that right at the moment, but it is not exclusive to just physical Israel by any means. And Paul is saying so right here. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to an holy temple in the Lord. So he lays it out here for us that the church is being built, a temple is being built in the New Testament of church members. I think this is fairly clear. In whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now in Revelation 21 you will find that God also says that he will live there in and among the church, the people, the redeemed, the first fruits. Please have patience. We'll get to the timing of Revelation 14 and 21 later. I took you there in the past, in, in the, I think it was the last sermon, and I dropped you. I just made a reference to that being the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and uh, a brief comment that it tied to the church. I left you there partially on purpose because I wanted to bring forward some other concepts before we got deeply into that. And the reason I took you that far and dropped you was I wanted you to be thinking about it. There are some things there that you might have thought in the past that may not be quite that way. And these things that we're discussing will impact that. So please have patience. We'll get there sooner or later. Notice in verse 22 here, though, in Ephesians 2, he says, You are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So they are spiritual Israelites, not the flesh. These are simple symbols that are applied to the church and members of the church. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, uh, Paul, we think it's Paul, was writing to those Jewish Christians who were being converted. And he starts out by saying that God spoke by different ways to your fathers, to the prophets, but now he speaks through Jesus Christ. Now we know the setting here in the time of Christ's physical life. The Jewish people, the physical Israelites, would not accept him. And Paul was saying, you are going to have to start looking to Christ. If you're going to be truly converted and be part of what God is doing henceforth, physical Israelites don't mean anything. But now, look to Jesus Christ. And if you go through, you'll find that this thread is woven all the way through the book of Hebrews about how he is the captain of our salvation, about how he is the high priest and that there's a change in the ministry from the priesthood to the New Testament ministry. On and on and on it goes. Now let's go to Hebrews 11 and verse 39. There's some very important symbolism coming up here in a little bit. He names the faithful of the Old Testament who are going to be included as first fruits. 
In fact, there's a Gentile in there if you want to stop and consider it, Rahab the harlot from Jericho, who believed and was counted as faithful because she believed and probably thereafter obeyed. But he, he names some pretty worthy people here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, on and on. Verse 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. He's telling the New Testament church, who had a strong bias toward Abraham, toward Moses, toward David, that we're just as good as they are as first fruits, as Christians. Now, I'm not saying that they might not have some high exalted positions in the kingdom of God above us. I think that's pretty clear in the scriptures. But as far as being a first fruit and salvation, they won't get there any quicker than we do. Well, that was hard for a Jew to swallow, that Jesus Christ would be the one to resurrect Moses. Did not Christ himself say, if Moses and Elijah here, how many could they save? Only themselves. He is the door. This makes the New Testament church sound pretty important when you look at it the way Paul was here. Then he goes through, beginning in chapter 12, he shows that we are called sons in verse 6, and that God chastens every son whom he loves, otherwise he's not a son and a bastard. Tie that a little bit to the church right now. Does it, does it seem we're being chastened? Are we all one big happy family today? I mean, speaking of the whole church, seems like there's some chastening going on. So the context is fitting very well, and of course he was talking to the New Testament church. And he tells them not to be like Esau, who took it lightly. Read that Laodicean. Oh, well. He's a symbol in prophecy as well, but not of the church. He's one of our enemies. Now let's pick it up in Hebrews 12 and verse 18. Because Paul is explaining this concept that we've been brushing up against very, very plainly here. Verse 18, For you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, <coughs> the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. They couldn't come up against the mountain, scared them to death. Don't let him speak to us, they said, and they backed off. And Paul says, you Jews in this congregation being converted, you Hebrews, are not coming to that mountain. You are not coming to Moses, in other words. So terrible, verse 21, was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, even Moses. Now, we're not coming to Moses. To whom are we coming? Now he explains, and this is so pivotal, so powerful, so important in explaining the symbolism of the prophecies. Verse 22, but you are come. Here's where we are, brethren, as a New Testament church. To Mount Zion, number one. Where did we read that? Revelation 14, 1. Mount Zion. And then he starts talking about the 144,000. To the city of the living God. The church is 
equated to and symbolic of the city of the living God, New Jerusalem, as we read in Revelation 21. The heavenly Jerusalem. Well, he says it in the next word. The church is the heavenly Jerusalem. And to an innumerable company of angels, so we're come to the angels as well, then he gets back to the church, to the general assembly, that is, the called out ones, the general group of God's people that he has called out. And he, he explains that with the next phrase, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That is where we also are come. We are also come to those which are written in heaven. Now, who are they? I won't turn back to it, but Luke 10 and verse 20 describes the, the disciples, the apostles, to be the foundation of the church, in other words, along with Christ. And there in Luke 10, 20, <coughs> Christ said, Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So it's very clear that those who began the church had their names written in heaven. So that ties it directly to the New Testament church and the organization of it. Now we're also to come to the church, to God's angels, and now to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now there's another, I think, uh, allusion to the church, probably to those in Hebrews 11. He's just named the spirits of just men who were made perfect and who are now awaiting the resurrection, and perhaps those who have died since Paul wrote this in the New Testament church. Verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So a better covenant as well. We're to look to the church, we're to look to God, we're to look to Christ, and we're to look to a better covenant. And he did throw in the angels here because we look to them for uh, protection and so on and so forth in the New Testament church. <clears throat> so Paul says this is where the focus should be. Now, how can we take these symbols back to the prophecies, prophecies of the Old Testament and correctly apply them to the church? I'm talking now about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Well, just like Philip did in Acts 8. It's very simple. Acts 8, you remember the story, and I don't want to read the whole thing here for sake of time, but you're pretty familiar that the Ethiopian eunuch was riding along, and he was reading, and it says he was reading in Isaiah. And he said, I don't understand this. Philip hopped up beside him. He says, you don't understand what you're reading? No. He says, how can I except the man teach me? So Philip began from that scripture and expounded to him Jesus Christ and him crucified. He applied Isaiah to Christ in the New Testament church. And before this conversation was over, he went over doctrine with Philip, I'm sure. He went over baptism, had to have, because what would this Ethiopian eunuch know about baptism? And by the time he got through with this ride, and I don't know how long it took, he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Oh, there's water here, nothing. Let's do it. Philip didn't have any problem tying it to the Old Testament. 
That's all he'd ever read in the first place, just like Timothy. Now let's go to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Down in verse 26. Galatians 4. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The heavenly Jerusalem we just saw is referring to the church, Hebrews 12:22. So Jerusalem above, the church, is the mother of us all, Paul says. I think that's pretty plain. Let's read Revelation 3. Tie that in with this. Revelation 3, verse 12. You don't have to turn back. You're probably familiar with this one. Revelation 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. So he's talking about the Philadelphia era of the church, all the eras actually who overcome, is, if you understand it. And he says that's who they are. Very plain. Revelation 21, since we're back here in the neighborhood, verse 1 and 2. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, we just read in some very clear scriptures, that is the church, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now someone says, well, there's no more sea when this happens. I told you, be patient. We'll, we'll get back to this. I'm just showing the tie-in here at this moment. Now, how do you apply that in the Old Testament? It's easy. Go back to Hosea. There God instructed Hosea to marry a, a whore, which he did. And she had daughters, and they also had problems. They didn't get off. He said, I will destroy, I think it's in chapter 4, your mother. Now, if you go back to Jeremiah 31, it's a very interesting thing. There, Jeremiah says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, everybody that's read Genesis knows Reuben was the firstborn. Now, did God go back and have a rebirth for all those original sons of Jacob so that Ephraim would become the firstborn? No, everybody understood that Reuben was the firstborn. Well, why does God then say, Ephraim is my firstborn? And we are the firstborn as well, first fruits. There wasn't a change in the birth order, but God spiritually said, I am going to set Ephraim ahead of Reuben and all the others. Now, the book of Hosea talks a great deal about Ephraim. And if you go back there, the context fits so well with the church and how the mother became a harlot going back to Babylon and Egypt. And the daughters don't get off scot-free. We brought Laodiceanism out of there with us. And God is still not happy with it. And he's not just scattering worldwide church of God. The scattering in the smaller groups is also continuing. Until enough people repent, that God turns his face back and saves a remnant. It's very plain when you get back there. But if you, if you go back there with the idea that the church is the mother. 
and that the Old Testament scriptures apply to the New Testament, not just to physical Israel, but to spiritual Israel. And the analogy is there. Now let's go to Galatians 6.16. Here he says, he talks about verse 15, a new creature, which we understand uh, to be a spirit-filled creature as opposed to carnally motivated. A new creature is everything, he says in verse 15. Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Now why does he say Israel of God as opposed to just saying Israel? Everybody would have understood, wouldn't they? Because he's making a distinction here. The Israel of God. He has abandoned physical Jerusalem. Calls it Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11. But the Israel of God is the church. He says circumcision is nothing. Right here in this verse, verse 15. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation is everything implied here. Physical Israel is nothing spiritually to God. Now let's go with this thought in mind of what I said about he's making a distinction. Let's go to Romans 9. Romans 9. And here he's talking about the adoption of Israelites and so on. Verse 6. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. You can be a physical Israelite. But that doesn't mean that you are of the Israel God is talking about. Verse 7, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. The physical birth in Israel means nothing spiritually. Now let's go to Romans 11:32. It's right here close. For God has concluded them, and he's speaking about physical Israel here, all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So he's not dealing with them right now. Their time doesn't come to the millennium and the great white throne judgment. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. We will be first. They will be last. First Peter 2 now adds a great deal to this. First Peter 2. And uh, beginning in verse 5, 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You also as lively stones, speaking of the church. Now here's another analogy and a symbol. When you find it in the Bible, we are stones. Hopefully lively, not just blockheads laying there, but lively stones. Zealous, eager, overcoming stones. Are built up a spiritual house. Talks about a habitation for God, we already read and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Not the blood of bull and goats, but spiritual sacrifices. Verse 9. But you are age... Well, he's speaking about physical Israel here stumbled at Christ in verse 8, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So he's saying they don't matter at this point. But you, the church, the scattered flocks of Israel is who Peter wrote to if you go back to the first of the book you the scattered are a chosen generation 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we, the church is referred to as a nation as well. When you go back and read about the nation of Israel, it spiritually applies to the church. A particular people, specific, exclusive, particular, picked out, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Same words as he used before, the Israel of God. We weren't a people before. Physical Israel was, but he's talking to the church. You weren't a people, but now you are, he says, which had not obtained mercy, but now have. I beseech you, and he uses some more symbolism here, strangers and pilgrims. We're called a lot of things in the Bible. Christ uses many analogies. Now, we have to be careful with analogies. We find them in the parables and elsewhere, but if we take them too far, they lose their meaning. Each analogy carries some meaning, but can't be carried all the way through, or this would cause Christ to break his Father's law, which he would not do, so they are only analogies. Now, let me illustrate. Here's some things we are called. We're called first fruits. That's the harvest of grain. We're also called firstborn. Firstborn is of cattle, of sheep, of flocks. We're also called sheep and flocks many times. Now, if you carry this analogy through all the way through, and we're both a first fruit and a firstborn, does that mean that we're a cow on one end and a stalk of wheat on the other end? You've got to get into genetic engineering here. See, the analogy only goes so far. We're also called children and sons. Well, that's okay so far in that analogy. I can be a child and I can be a son both. But let's carry it on. We're also referred to as daughters, as virgins, as bride, and mother. Now we're beginning to run into trouble if you take these things all the way through. How can a son marry a brother? The headlines in the paper yesterday were that uh, smiling, happy family of two homosexuals who had just adopted a baby, first time legally in this country. I nearly threw up on the paper. And they're talking about changing the genes like I was talking about up here. Now they've taken a human gene and injected it into those sheep in Scotland. Man is trying to mix the metaphors. But if you put daughters, virgins, bride, mother, all thing together, what's Christ going to do? If he marries 144,000, that's polygamy. See? If he marries a virgin and a mother, this doesn't work except with Mary. So the analogies break down if you take them so far. Now, what else are we called? We're called, as we've already seen, the city. Mix a city in with a mother. you got a big mother, I guess. <laughs> So you only take the city analogy so far. We're called kings. And Micah 4.9 says our king is dead, our counselor is perished. I have no problem with that. That's easy to apply to the church. When were we scattered? When our counselor, our king, was perished. If we're called kings, and we're going to be kings, then our leader, Herbert Armstrong, was in one sense, by analogy or by symbol, our king overall. Now we've got a bunch of little kings and little shepherds, but we don't have an overall shepherd, like he says in Ezekiel 34. We're scattered all over the place without one shepherd. Easy to apply. We're also called priests, 
ambassadors, pilgrims, Jerusalem, the Israel of God, Jews, Judah, Ephraim, saints, temple, building, stones, jewels, pillars, body, many members, hopefully a live body, not latest in, not Sardis, but live. Slaves. You're going to make your wife a slave? See, the analogy can only go so far. She's going to balk there. Now, what a mix this is. And this is only a two-minute list. This is just what I just sort of started listing, and there they came into my mind. This list is, goes on and on and on, but you get the point. Each analogy adds to the picture, but is not the whole picture. What did Christ often say when he would begin a story? The kingdom of God is like. And he used all kinds of different symbols and analogies to show that. The kingdom of God is like a lot of things. But it's not exactly like any one of those things. Now, I know that's hard for our minds to grasp because we like things all tied up in a neat little package. But that's not the way it is. Now, let's carry it a little bit further. We're warned all over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament not to go back to Egypt. Paul talked about it in Corinthians. Well, the symbol fits. What is worldwide done? They've gone back to the doctrines and practices of Egypt. So when you read about Egypt in the Old Testament, you can make the spiritual connection pretty easily. This is talking about worldwide Church of God's leaders and a lot of its people now spiritually applied, not just physically. When Ephraim runs off to Egypt, we've tried to apply that over the years to Britain running to Egypt. Now, why would Britain run to a fourth-rate nation? they got nothing Britain needs. Referring to Ephraim running back to Egypt, the church going back to the false doctrines. Now, it may have a physical application somewhere down the line, but that's the first and primary meaning of Hosea. We're told to come out of and go not back to Babylon. So when you read about Babylon, what did worldwide do? They went back to Babylon. So when you read of Babylon in there, you can pretty well plug worldwide church of God in there now as Babylon. Maybe some of the daughters of Babylon do, to one degree or another. Does it help to come out of Babylon and then sink back into the same way of thinking and acting you were in when you were there and not turn to God? We're told to watch out for the Assyrian. He'll come as the destroyer. Or is the leadership of worldwide a destroyer? Sure destroyed the church. So when you read the Assyrian, the symbol is there. Tie it together with the church. Makes prophecies really come alive. Laments 2, 1 through 8. Lamentation says, I destroyed you. But in other scriptures, it shows that I will send the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, to destroy you. So God allowed Satan and the leaders of worldwide to go a great ways toward destroying the church. These symbols can all be applied to the Old Testament prophecies, and they fit. Now, someone wrote in recently uh, after my last sermon and said some, that Herbert Armstrong was quoted as saying the church is one body, not divided, so how can the splits be the daughters of the mother in Hosea or the daughters of Zion? Good question. <clears throat> Herbert Armstrong was absolutely correct when he wrote that the church was one body, not divided. 
When he wrote that, there was only one organization, so far as any of us knew. There were little groups that we knew about, perhaps in Russia, South America, etc., that we'd heard about that were keeping the truth. And we're seen to at least have some truth and may or may not have been part of the remnant of the truth from the early church. That's a possibility. But here... known the Father, they would have known true doctrine, etc., and that's how they're identified. But as far as in all practical application, we could see we were one body doing a work. Herbert Armstrong often referred to himself as our father in the faith. Remember that? He wasn't inferring in the same way the Pope does as the vicar of Christ replacing Christ or as a spiritual father in that sense. But Paul used the same exact analogy when he talked to his people as the one through whom God called us. Now, in that sense, the church can be described as our mother, helping lead us to our Father in heaven. I have no problem with that. And in the other analogy, to our husband-to-be, Jesus Christ. Bride, mother, depends on which analogy he's using at the moment. Ephesians 5 shows that physical marriage is a type of Christ and the church. In that symbolism, the man... Is a type of Christ. Did you know you are a type of Christ, gentlemen? And the wife is a type of the church. Maybe we should think a little bit about how we treat each other. In one way, excuse me, in one way of looking at it, the church is still not divided. For within the whole assembly of God's church, wherever it is scattered today, including tares, God knows those that are his. They're not divided in purpose and mind and ambition and in zeal. God knows where those are who are still working and overcoming. The tares he will separate out. In another analogy, some fall by the wayside, some fall in thorns, some fall in rocks, some fall in good ground. A separation has to occur between those peoples. So the members are the church, the called out ones. I have no argument with that. And are together in truth and obedience no matter what corporate organization they are or are not part of. On the other hand, we all slumbered and slept, became Laodicean, and God is spewing us out of his mouth like vomit under pressure. So by analogy, there was one church corporate organization until God himself began to scatter us. The church represents Zion. We saw that in Hebrews 12.22. And now that the church, that is the members, are scattered into many organizations, those organizations then easily become analogous to the daughters of Zion and are referred to as such in the prophecies. That seems fairly simple. So when we truly understand what all these analogies in the New Testament are saying, who they are talking about, we can then look at conditions in the church and see prophecy happening, opening up right before our very eyes. Because we can go back there and read this and say, this happened ten years ago. This happened five years ago. I see this happening right now in the churches of God. God has showed us a timeline here of exactly where we are in prophecy. Now, do you realize what this means? 
the only people on earth who can even begin to understand the Bible and its prophecies are the members of the one true only church of God. Essentially those who came through or were familiar with the worldwide church of God. That is pretty exclusive. This premise should be becoming obvious and will become more so as we continue this series. What about it? When the religious, very religious people stoned Stephen to death, he said, forgive them, they don't have a clue. I'm paraphrasing. Even the commentators who've written Bible commentaries, great tomes, intelligent, bright, brilliant, quote-unquote Christians of this world see some application to the Christian church in the New Testament in the Old Testament prophecies. They mention it here and there throughout their comments. But they haven't a clue who. They don't know who it's talking about. They think it's Methodist, Baptist, and Lutherans. We know better. And if they are not familiar with the Church of God and what has happened with the apostasy, with the death of Herbert Armstrong, with the going back to Egypt and Babylon doctrinally, they can't apply those prophecies to the Church because those dynamics are not happening in the same way in their Church. Although with Satan, the parallels are frighteningly close in some ways as those Churches are coming apart. But we can see it and put personalities in there now. Other people, then, can see how prophecy applies to physical Israel through the millennium, and that's what they write, historical notes and so on about how this will be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the millennium. They say those things, but they are very limited. Most do not even know who Israel is, thinking they're just the Jews. Most of the rest do not understand the holy days or the resurrections, so they can't understand the plan of God, the mystery of God, the purpose of man. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand Genesis 1.26 for starters. Now, can we begin to see that our application that you made in Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1-2 to the Church of God ministry, not just the ministry of physical Israel, goes far deeper than those two chapters. There's a lot more to it than that. The prophecies of the Bible are being enacted on the church just prior to the physical tribulation and captivity of physical Israel. What you see happening in the church right now is a microcosm of what is about to happen to physical Israel. We are being scattered, chastened, punished, humbled, prepared to be ready to help those people as kings and priests. And as soon as God is humbled enough but he then takes them to safety and begins giving them the final preparations. He is going to turn it loose on physical Israel. And they are going to be scattered and chastened and punished and humbled. So that when the millennium begins, we as their teachers, as their mother, will be there to lead them to God. But it has to happen to us first. Christ had to go through it to be a compassionate high priest to us. 
And we have to go through it to be compassionate priests and kings to those people. What you see is exactly what is happening today. Judgment is now on the house of spiritual Israel, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. There in the context it talks about the crisis, the turning point has come. Peter realized that with the inception of the New Testament church, he faced a crisis in his life, and he thought that Christ was returning at that point very soon. So he applied the crisis, the punishment, the chastening, the building, the miracles, everything, to the church then. And he wasn't really wrong. It just wasn't the final fulfillment of that symbolism in the Old Testament. The same with Acts 2. The judgment on the true ministry of Christ in spiritual Israel has already become manifest, and the flocks are still being scattered, are they not? We see that around us every day. It's so plain. Let's go for a moment here. How much time do I have left? I've only got two and a half pages. Um, Zechariah 11. So you can see it. Zechariah 11 starts out by saying, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Richard showed us pretty plainly that trees represent churches, just as women represent churches in the symbolism of the Bible. The fire may devour your cedars, or a church. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O you oaks of Bashan, for the rest of the vintage has come down. So the cedar, the oak, and the uh, fir tree, big trees, some pretty big churches, not little bitty ornamental shrubs, but bigger pieces are come down. There's a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glory is spoiled, the voice of the roaring of young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. He says, speed the flock of the slaughter. Could that apply any way greater than it does right now? Don't we see the flock of the slaughter out there? What did Christ tell Peter? After he had already died, been resurrected, and came back in John 21. I won't turn back there for sake of time, but you can go back and read it. John 21:15. you're very familiar with it. He had already told them, go out and make disciples of all nations and so on. There in Matthew 28, 19, 20. But his final instruction to Peter is the head of the church. Just before Pentecost, just before the church even began, he said, Peter, do you love me? Well, of course I do. Feed my lambs. Now, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I always have loved you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? What do you mean? is implied there almost in the in, you know Peter began to get perturbed you've asked me twice what do you mean he said feed my sheep yes sir three times for emphasis now did Peter leave that meeting saying I best guess better go preach the gospel I don't think so he began looking for sheep to feed Their shepherds pity them not, verse 5. They slay them and hold themselves not guilty. 
Is that what was happening to us? We were being butchered in worldwide. And then he goes on and down and talks about three organizations, three shepherds, perhaps, three ministries being destroyed, and the two witnesses are going to take over and feed those sheep and lead them to Christ. Now, does this fit the New Testament, or does it not? Just talking about physical Israel? No, this is talking about the church. I believe while God may still see worldwide as our mother, he views her as a harlot and now refers to her as Egypt and Babylon. The same is true of physical Jerusalem, which he now calls Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11, we've already mentioned. So see how the analogy fits. Physical Jerusalem is Sodom and Egypt, so a spiritual Jerusalem, that is why God is bent on scattering us. He's putting us to the sword. Many are dead and dying spiritually, to famine and pestilence, spiritually starving and sick. Famine of the word, Amos said. That has to be the church. And many are now in captivity. That is, they sunk back into Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, depending on which captivity your particular prophecy is talking about. Israel was in captivity in Egypt, and then in Babylon to the Assyrian. So either fits. So Ezekiel 5, and the scattering there of the third, the third, the third, and then some to the hair taken out of his apron, remember, is being enacted on spiritual Israel just as it will on physical Israel very shortly, as soon as this scattering of the church is finished. God will save a very small remnant of the church, Isaiah 1.9, from the tribulation, just as he will save a small remnant of physical Israel from physical death to work toward salvation in the millennium. So it's dual. Both will happen. But one is happening now. I believe he will ultimately save most of the church, Romans 11:26, just as he will ultimately save most of physical Israel. Same verse. The remnant of the church will be taken to a place of safety, but many will repent during the tribulation, though they may have to give their lives physically in order to prove their faithfulness. Physical Israel will essentially be destroyed, but will be saved in the second resurrection, Ezekiel 37, when they are given physical life and spiritual opportunity. For yourself, look up daughter and daughters of Zion in a concordance. Read the context in which they appear. Do not those prophecies, good and bad, parallel what's happening in the church today? Now, I hope this begins to help explain how we're viewing the prophecies today. When physical Israel finds herself in captivity in the not-too-distant future, she is to do what? Repent and turn to God with her whole heart that she might be saved. When we all went to sleep and found ourselves waking up in spiritual Babylon, Egypt, and Assyria, what were we to do? Turn to God with all our heart, repent, and hope he saves us. I didn't expect this to happen on Pentecost when we talked about Acts 2 and Joel it's only a beginning one fast just starts the process of turning to God with our whole heart that takes time sometimes it has to be repeated like it was to Peter do you do you do you well yes yes of course I do <laughs> exasperated it takes time it takes energy it takes zeal So now we're buying oil for our lamps if we lacked. He will save us. But alas, it will be a remnant to begin with. 
He'll begin to draw us back one by one into a fold. You read it in Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. I'll draw you one by one. I'll start bringing you back to me. Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24. He says essentially the same thing. <coughs> Matthew 25. He gathers one out of a bed, leaves the other one. One out of the field, leaves the other one. He's going to begin gathering one by one. Twos and threes, whatever. To a place of safety. How will this be accomplished? Through the two witnesses who will be the main ones building the latter temple by working with the people. Haggai's talking about the church. It's talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses. Now, we've thought in the past, we just read Revelation 11, thought these two guys were just going to go preach to the world. No, they're building the latter temple. Herbert Armstrong built the former one. It's been torn down in front of us. And it's, by, it's nothing in comparison to what it was for us old men to look back at. I'll include myself. All right. But a new temple is being formed. The, te the stones are being shaped and built right now put the temple back together. Those two will also supply oil to all seven of the churches, all seven of the attitudes. Zechariah 4 says so. Oil will come from the two anointed ones to feed the whole church, all seven, who will be planted in the wilderness. Isaiah 41:19 mentions seven different trees that will be planted in the wilderness. Seven trees, seven churches and become one. And once the negative, bad parts of those churches disappear, then you can't tell them one from the other. One body, one sheepfold. Now, we've generally overlooked the last half of the witness's job. The other half, Matthew 24, 14, is Revelation 11, is witness and a testimony against the world. First to the church, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You notice the plumb line there in Revelation 11? Same plumb line that Zerubbabel has there in Zechariah 4 and, and in uh, Zechariah 2. Now here, it is important to realize the Old Testament prophecies are written first to the church. Do you really think the two witnesses are unconverted physical Jews, the governor of Israel, and a rabbi in Jerusalem? Some in the church of God think so because they don't recognize the duality of prophecy. But when God calls them his prophets in Revelation 11, I don't think he's talking about some Jews who have no spiritual influence with God at all. We've seen that the lively stones build the temple, the habitation for God. It is a spiritual organism. It's what the prophecies are talking about. It's what Christ went to the disciples, the apostles, and told them about. When he talked to the physical Israelites, the Jews, the Pharisees, in the New Testament, it was generally bad. And then he would turn to his disciples and say, now here's the understanding of it. To you I give understanding. I'm taking it away from them if they had any, and I'm giving it to you. And I also give you the keys of the kingdom. And I also make you the lively stones, and you are the habitation that I am going to live in. Those physical Jews mean nothing over there in a spiritual sense. They may build a physical temple to fulfill the prophecy, but it won't cut any ice with Christ. That's Sodom and Egypt. They are concluded in unbelief until the times of refreshing. So 
Well, the two witnesses are clearly working with the latter church, the last temple. The last shaking of the earth of Haggai 2 clearly shows it to be the end time, and the church is all that spiritually counts at the end. The 144,000 firstfruits. Now, it remains to be seen who the witnesses are and when this happens, but I think that's immaterial, because another thing which is far more important for you and me that remains to be seen is who will repent, who will overcome, who will don the righteousness or the garments of holiness and be included in the righteous remnant. That's what the prophecies are all about. That's what the message is, is repent so that you can quit being chastened and be blessed by God, to be part of the remnant that God draws back to begin working with. That's what the whole message is back there. So all the prophecies, brethren, are living, real, and dynamic for you and me today. Not just to the Jews, not just to the physical Israelites in Jacob. They're profitable to the church for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Next time we will consider another important key to understanding scripture and prophecy for the church, and maybe some of the other topics I have broached, i.e. wedding supper, guests, innumerable multitude, I can't say it, the timing of all this, etc. We'll see how far we get next week.